welcome everybody to this special Christmas Eve edition of the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And ho, 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 I'm Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. <laughs> we are going to steer clear of government programs today. We're not going to talk about Go Misa. We're not talking about the uh, NIFWIF or any of the funding. We're not talking about regulatory stuff. Today, we're going to go as close as we can to the North Pole on the American Shoreline podcast. We have a special guest with us today, Craig Burrell, who is a, a I will say, is an adventurer and an experienced, uh, you know, guide on the American shoreline. Uh, Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here today. <laughs> you know, before we jump in, uh, Craig, we got to do a little bit of business. So uh, we want to say thanks to our sponsors this year who helped get the American Shoreline podcast and the Coastal News Today Network off the ground this year. Uh, Tyler, two people we want to thank. Yes, we want to thank uh, Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida. This is a dune restoration and uh, consultation company. Uh, they work all along the Gulf Coast, all, all the way from uh, Brownsville in, in Texas, all the way around uh, to uh, the south. Key West. Key West. In, and up in the Florida. Atlantic side, Absolutely. too. It's the Gulf of Mexico, Craig, for you uh, folks. We're down here in the south. You know, you're up there in the north. They're a hub vendor, uh, native dune plants, Frederic Barisset, a uh, longtime supporter of our program and great company she runs there. If you are in need of these services, go to dunedoctors.com. Dunedoctors.com, great company. And our other sponsor this year, uh, TI Coastal Services from Wilmington, North Carolina, a coastal engineering firm perfect for Communities along the shoreline contending with shoreline change, dune restoration, a waterway management, a very, very good company. Chris Gibson, a true professional, ticoastal.com. Check them out. So, Craig, the Noatak River in Alaska, where the hell is that? And tell us about this river. Can you set the stage? Can you, can you put this river in context yeah, it's um, it, it flows out of the Brooks Range. Uh, the Brooks Range is the amazing um, mountain range, very ancient range in um, far north Alaska. It's all above the Arctic Circle. Um, I uh, when I went up there, I started near the headwaters of, of the Noatak. It flows um, in pretty much a meandering westerly direction. Um, all the way down to um, a town of Kotzebue, um and and empties out in, into um, into the sound and and uh, uh, and drains a, a large part of uh, that part of the Brooks Range. So it flows more westerly. There are some other rivers that that kind of shoot off to the south and to the north. Um, the Noatak pretty much. You go east to west and and um, and come out uh, in into the Great North Pacific. So it's 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 pretty far up there. I mean, for our listeners who are who are not familiar with the Brooks Range and uh, that part of the Alaskan shoreline, uh, fill us in on exactly where this is uh, uh, in terms of its. Uh, northern northern latitude um north of the arctic circle um and it's north of the entirely. bering strait right it's 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 way up there oh yes it is um it's um past the uh past the tree line as they say up there wow. um, because there uh there's a um, a spot on the Hall Road, which is the only road that, that goes all the way north in Alaska. There's a spot up there that has uh, uh, one lone tree sitting by the side of the road, and they have it labeled as the farthest north uh, tree in North America. I think that's probably not accurate, but um, it's, um, yeah, it's a... Um, real wild and and open part of north america um it and that you know it stretches all the way across north america uh, 
great wild world. Now, in the of course, in order to uh, make this uh, voyage, I'm sure you would need to do this in uh, the summertime, right? Is this area even accessible uh, in in the winter months? Well, it freezes over, of course, and and um, and, and and I'm sure that that people come up that river probably um, using snow machines and, and other ways when it's frozen over. But um, yeah, to um, to be able to get on it with a watercraft, uh, it, it's something you do in the summer. Um, I, I chose August because it's the, uh, the low mosquito season, which is a huge benefit. So you went in August, and uh, so what do you take the Greyhound up to uh, the Arctic Circle? How did you get to the Noatak River? That well, tell us more about just getting to the Noatak River. How did you get to this a very, very remote part of the American shoreline? Uh, how did how yeah? It's planes, trains, and automobiles, uh, <laughs> and uh, in reverse order, um, because you um, from from where I'm at on Puget Sound. Um, Take, um, I flew up to Fairbanks, Alaska. From Fairbanks, you take a another plane up to a um, to a landing strip um, at a place called Bettles, uh, one of those little jumping off spots that's on the very uh, south end of of the Brooks Range. Um, there's actually a, a national park station there. Um, because most of the um, uh, most of the area, the entire area I was in is um, is part of either a national park or a national preserve. Um, so Bettles is a very small place that um, that is most active during the summer. It kind of shuts down after that. When you get to Bettles, you can then um, hop on a in, into a one of those small bush planes that um, that takes you a couple hours further north, and and really it's kind of a, a miracle of modern transportation that allows me to um, to go up to such a wild place. Uh, there's no other way to get up there except uh, on foot, um, and it'd be a long walk. <laughs> what what kind of uh, wildlife? Uh, would you uh, encounter up there in August? Well, the wildlife is is kind of a, a whole different story. Um, when I flew up there from Battles, um, we had a, a gorgeous flight um, up through up through the mountains. Um, and in looking down, you began to get a sense of what you'd see. Um, we we saw moose on the flight going up and. And saw a few bears, um, saw some caribou, um, but when the plane uh, dropped me off, it, it basically uh, comes down into a, a small lake right next to the river, and um, uh, and it's 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 an amazing feeling to um, to take all your gear out of the plane and and uh, throw it on the shore of the of the lake and watch the plane take off and. And at that point, um, you're on your own, and and uh, and I was probably the wildest life there at that point. Mm-hmm. So this was a solo trip in August. Uh, how many, Craig? So you fly in uh, on a bush plane. I guess it sounds like it's an amphibious plane, right? Lands on the water. Uh, yeah, most of the uh, a lot of the planes up there. It's much easier to land on water. There are some wheeled planes that land on gravel bars and that kind of thing. But yeah. um, uh, one of the smoothest ways to go is is on a plane that's equipped to land on the water. So that would mean that you're coming into some sort of lake uh, yeah. up at the, you said, near the headwater. So we're, we're looking yeah. at the Google Earth. Is it possible for us to track this down? Is that, let's see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm... Looking at the place where I landed, uh, actually, I've got it on a on a map in front of me, and and uh, the the attack does a lot of meandering, um, as most of the rivers up there do, 
And so there are a lot of oxbow lakes that are created by the river over time. And, and those are what the pilots used to land on. Wow. I, I was picked up um, at another one of those much further on down the river. But um, they're, they're just little, um, little oxbow lakes that were created over time for the most part. Mm. And, um, and their closeness to the river makes them a real good landing spot for an airplane. How many days and how many miles did you plan for? Um, I left myself uh, just about two weeks on the river, um, which uh, I would have loved to have made it longer. Um, it seemed like a, a very short trip. Um, but the getting up there and, and, uh, and getting back took several days, and so it wound up being about a three-week trip altogether. That sounds incredible. And, and just kind of walk us through what a typical day on the river would be like. I mean, I, you know, I imagine it gets cold at night, even in August. I imagine, you know, you've, you're obviously having to bring all of your provisions and food and shelter and all that uh, along with you. So what would a typical day look like? Well, um, I can start with my first day when I got yeah. dropped off. Um, yeah, you, you bring along everything that you have to have um, for living up there for a couple of weeks. And, um, and in the summer, it's actually very nice and mild um, for the most part. Uh, I've, I've been in the Brooks Range hiking before and had snowstorms but in August, but um, I was spared that this time. Uh, daytime temps were about in the 50s and, and um, got down to seemed like the t lower 20s was kind of the coldest evenings. Um, so really not too bad and, and, and not very rainy at all. But when I get dropped off there, um, uh, I got this big pile of stuff. Uh, I, had a, uh, I had to use a collapsible boat of some kind. I couldn't bring my favorite uh, kayak. So um, it was a rubber raft. And, um, and when I dropped off, uh, I, it was uh, oh, still uh, fairly early in the morning, so I was able to get on the water right away. But I drug everything I had down to the river and um, put it all together, crammed it in the boat, and in amazingly short time, it only took me about an hour and a half to get everything ready, and and um, and I was off on my way. Um, the the river's really very um, amenable to to paddling on. There's uh, very little white water at all on on this stretch of the river. Um, so uh, it's very forgiving river to get on to. Um, but the thing that that first uh, amazes you is that is just the quiet and and the total lack of of any uh, remembrance of of humans around you, because once the plane took off, it was um, uh, I I saw one other couple on uh, during the two weeks that I was up there and. Otherwise, you just don't you don't get any reminder of humans around you, which I found very comforting. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, uh, it was nice to get on the river and, and, and when you when you head down it, um, river moves along at, at um, three to five miles per hour, um, so that's a nice pace. Yeah, a nice meandering uh, pace there. Oh yeah, yeah, nice relaxed pace. Uh, the boat that I had, the raft that I had, had an oar rig, so um, so I was able to row and, and increase my speed if I needed to. But for the most part, I, I just let myself wander on down that river and, and enjoy it. Describe your your uh, raft, your vessel here. It's it's inflatable, right? So uh, what you describe that, that? Describe this thing. Is it is it how big is it? Um, I, I suppose you have to bring some sort of um, inflation tool to help you uh, manage that. Yeah, I wasn't quite up for blowing it up. Uh, you, you bring a pump, and it's it's really a, a basic one-person whitewater raft, uh, about 15 feet long and and um, and about three feet across. Uh, 
just perfect for for one or two people really. Um, you um, have a pump along, which is the most um, important piece of equipment really for getting started. Uh, it would make a very sad raft without the air in it. Um, so uh, once I got it pumped up, I knew I was good to go. And and um, the boat's real nice uh, as opposed to a kayak. It's super easy to load. You just throw your stuff in and and off and away you go. How did you plan for, you basically have to live completely self-sustaining for, you know, this 14, 15 day period in the wilderness. There's no, there's no uh, provisions available. There's no help nearby. There are no stores or ranger stations or, I mean, this is isolated, isn't it? It's completely isolated from any other uh, people other than someone else who might be on the water you know, a few days ahead of you. Oh yeah. Um, you have to plan on being self-sufficient and, um, that, that's really the easiest part of it. Um, I, I chipped up some food, the, the logistics leading into it were, uh, were certainly a bit complicated, but, um, basically I figured out, um, about how many calories I needed each day and then, and then set out to, uh, get all the food I needed to, to meet that goal. And, and, um, as usually happens, I, I had plenty of food, ate, ate real well the whole time I was up there, but you have to make sure that, that you, uh, uh, in true Santa form, you make a list and you check it twice. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> or thrice in this case. Yeah. I checked everything at least three times, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> because if you don't, but at the same time, it's kind of relaxing because, you know, well, if you don't have it, you're not going to get it. So you'll just deal without it. Um, there were a few little oversights. The saddest thing that happened to me actually was that um, I had a uh, an air mattress. I won't I won't mention the uh, brand name now because it <laughs> blew out on me the very first night I was up there. What a bummer. Uh, and I had no way to fix it. So um, so there went my comfy bed. Um, and, uh, and so I slept on the ground the whole time. Um, and, uh, and, and that was a great example of, you know, you, you take what you feel you need. And then, um, if, if it all works out well and it all functions well, then, then you're in great shape. And, uh, something like, um, a pad under me at night was, um, not a necessity, just mm -hmm. a comfort. So, uh, that's, kind of the least of the things that that can become a problem and you know with the boat it's um you know it's a very durable boat but you uh take long repair kits because that's the other thing that you really don't want to have to do without um to get out of there would be um you know without a plane uh, would be a, a long long hike indeed yeah and and you mentioned that you kind of budgeted out your calorie uh you know, estimate that you would need every day. And you, so, so what kind of food did you bring? Really pretty much the, the same kind of stuff that I would eat here. Um, you know, a lot of pasta and, and, um, things like that, that are quick and easy to make, uh, lots of hot chocolate, <laughs> which was, a, which was the, the daily treat and plenty of coffee. Um, so it, I wasn't eating really much differently than I would at home. Um, and being on the water, you know, if you're backpacking, you have to be real cautious about weight. Um, but being on the water and, and having a boat to carry the weight is, makes it uh, a little more luxurious that way because you can bring some treats along to eat. So I was fed very well the entire time. Uh, would you build fires? No. Um, the traditionally, um, it, in in the my practice, I don't I don't typically build fires much because they're they're very high impact. Um, so I take a cooking stove along, which is um, uh, the easiest thing for the world. I'm traveling through. Uh, I, I was always trained to leave no trace, and um, fires are a real comfort. Um, I always think a fire is paleo television. <laughs> and um, uh, 
and and I and I love a good fire, but at any rate, it would be hard up there because there's not much to burn. Um, there's very few trees, um, very little wood that you find. You you could you could certainly scrape some together, but it would be a be a bit of an effort. What about uh, foraged uh, vegetables or you know fruits or anything like that? Were you able to to gather any any treats along the way? I was eating the best blueberries in the world every day of the trip because um, it was the height of blueberry season. So there were lots and lots of blueberries um, and a few other kinds of berries, uh, but not a lot other than that. If you were if you were hunting, you'd have been in great shape um, because there were plenty of caribou and, um, and other other mammals that that. Um, that you'd be able to eat. I also did a good bit of fishing. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. There was, um, the, actually the no attack itself has quite a bit of silt in it. And so it's, um, uh, I didn't never had much luck fishing in the river itself, but the tributaries into it were, were real clear. And, and there are lots of Arctic grayling. Um, they were, um, they're real good eating. They're, they're kind of a trout like fish. And so fish is probably the, the, the easiest thing to get at. And, and again, lots of blueberries. So were you able to, to harvest some fish and eat them? Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, on pretty much, I'd say about any time I, I wanted to, I could, um, I could coax a few grayling out. So I, I fish probably half the days I was up there. Mm. So the no attack for the, and I don't think there's anybody, who, there are very few people in America who probably know anything about this river, but 425 miles long, um, and it ends up in the, is it the Chukchi Sea? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Katsubui Sound, which is part Katsubui of the Chukchi um, it's, it's actually just above where the... Um, the land bridge supposedly went through, so mm. it's north of that. Um, kind of the Kotzebue Sound is the first big sound north of that, and, and yeah, it's called the Chukchi Sea up there. And it's the the entire course of the river is a is above the Arctic Circle, um, and in and and comes out of the gates of the Arctic National Park uh, and into the Noatak National Preserve. So this is federal federal land up there. Um, is there any when in your time on the river? Uh, is there any oil and gas development or infrastructure in the watershed, or is this pretty pristine stuff up there? The amazing thing that strikes you right away is that you see. I saw uh, no sign whatsoever of of any human development the the entire time I was up there. Um, and, and I hiked up to some, some pretty high points and it's, it's pretty satisfying for me to be able to look around and, and, um, and feel like I'm in true wilderness as far as I can see. Uh, there, there was no indication of, of any kind of development at all. Um, the, the very last day I was on the river, um, I, uh, I went, I went past a, a small old mining shack that that was abandoned that someone had put up years ago. Um, that was the only thing that I saw the entire time that uh, had been made by humans that I could tell. Fantastic! It must be extraordinary. Is and the No Attack National Preserve six and a half million acres in size, Craig. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about Alaska, uh, and from those of us who uh, down in the lower 48, the scale of the territory and the scale of that state is just hard to comprehend how huge uh, the Alaska area is. And these these areas are just phenomenally well, large. Every time I've ever flown up there, I, you're, you're just kind of staggered by it when you, you look out from the height of... Uh, of an airplane, and and as far as you can see, it's uh, it's true wilderness uh, with 
no real sign of, of humans being up there. We have certainly made a lot of impacts mm -hmm. in that part of the world, but um, but it's a it's an enormous area that that we haven't made much impact on it. It's a real harsh world to live in for for much of the year, and and so it's a, it's a real challenging place. Were you able to get all the way to uh, uh, the sea on this trip? No, I didn't. I didn't make it all the way down to Kotzebue. I, I, I actually um, have been very tempted to think about going back and finishing that off this summer, but um, don't know if I'll if I'll get that far. Um, it uh, the river really uh, slows down and and widens out and, and braids during the lower part of its travel yeah. to um, to where it empties into the sound um, and. Um, and that makes a great trip, and 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 I would love to have done it. It it would it would have added another two weeks to my trip. So uh, wow, didn't work out this time. It's and it it empties into the sea. There's a bit of a delta. It looks like uh, in the Google Earth that it of course it spreads out, flattens out like all most rivers do when they approach the coast. Uh, yeah, they get slower. Uh, there would have been a little more paddling involved in that section of the river, I'd assume. Yeah, it'd be a bit more work, uh, and it, and also in terms of the topography, the uh, you wind up going out onto the coastal plain, and and so it's um, um, it, it's a lot more level, and um, uh, and that yeah, it slows everything down. Uh, but I I was uh, sad to miss that area because it's a great place for. Uh, nesting birds of all kinds from all over the world. Mm. You know, one of the reasons I was really interested in talking with you is in looking at the the uh, the plans for this part of the American shoreline, uh, the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, BOEM, is in the middle of putting together the 2019 to 2024 uh, offshore energy strategy, uh, this particular, well, all of the Alaska shoreline is open for, or will be open for oil and gas leasing, including this particular stretch uh, of the Alaskan shoreline. Um, in, the, in, in your travels up, uh, up and back and in talking to folks uh, up in Alaska, did you hear much about it or about what's happening in uh, in potential future uh, oil and gas development along the Alaska shoreline, including the, the is it the Beaufort Sea further north from there? Yeah, it, the you know the people, a lot of people that I talked to up there um, have a generally positive feeling about it because right. it means jobs, uh, development means money for them, and so um, so you. I, I tended to hear positive things about that, you know, in addition to oil and gas development, there's also, of course, the, uh, the big potential for opening up those sea lanes. And um, right. uh, there's already becoming an increased U.S. naval presence in those waters, um, which, you know, adds to the impact overall. But I, um, I think that... Um, as anywhere, Alaskans are, are are real mixed in their feelings about uh, about how that should proceed. But certainly, when when it's in their economic interests, then there's a um, a big impulse to to be accepting of of that kind of development. Um, I I'm not sure, to be honest, if there's you, you know if they they were to find um, huge oil fields underneath. Um, Underneath the Brooks Mountain mountain range, uh, it would be a prime spot to to face its own development at, at some future. But um, uh, I I'm hoping that'll be spared in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the United States right now, the number one oil producer in the world, uh, 11.9 million barrels per day production. We're a little bit ahead of Saudi Arabia. We're a little bit ahead of Russia, um, and the oil and gas development uh, in the lower 48 is rocking and rolling. Uh, 
all over, including certainly in here Gulf, in Texas. And certainly here in Texas and Alaska, of course, has a long history of energy development. Uh, every Alaskan gets a royalty check yeah. every year. Uh, and, it, you know, it's great to see that distribution of the economic effect of oil and gas. Um, but, I, you know, I'm curious about, I think the things that we're watching on Coastal News today and what we have started to follow a little closer is, of course, what's happening with uh, offshore energy, uh, both in terms of oil and gas and wind uh, development along the eastern seaboard. There's a, there was a big lease sale today off the state of Massachusetts on the wind side. And then, of course, the changing sea, uh, sea surface ice uh, up in the Arctic um, is really starting to uh, motivate all of the countries around the Arctic Circle to establish a greater presence there, both for oil and gas, I think, Craig, but also for uh, natural resources like the fisheries up there uh, are starting to become more accessible. Um, as someone who has spent your life, and I understand, Craig, you, as a former Knowles instructor, the National Outdoor Leadership School, you've spent a lot of time in Alaska. You've spent a lot of time around the American shoreline um, at this point in your life, when you look at what's coming down the road, what is, what do you think about it? Well, it's changing, uh, and you know, change is a constant. Um, and it's, it's remarkable when you go to Alaska, the, I've been going up there for, um, oh, almost 20 years and, and, uh, and even in, in that short a span of time in a place like, uh, Prince William Sound, toward the southern part of Alaska, uh, there are glaciers that you just see, you can see the difference uh, in, in their expansion and, and their contraction. And, uh, and changes um, is a big part of what's going on. When I was on that river, um, it was amazing to me to, to go past these big cut banks where, where you'd see immense areas of ice under the under the soil um the permafrost um and uh that that is uh an amazing storehouse that uh that's changing at a real rapid rate um and and that's you know not the kind of thing that's visible to to someone's eye as you travel through even even over time um but just reading the information about it, I, I realize how uh, how quickly it's changing, and and um, you become aware of that when you see these big areas of ice that have been cut away by the river, uh, and uh, that's that's an ancient reserve um, that's that's melting and releasing methane and and changing every year. Well, it's definitely you know up there. And I, I mean, I imagine that this, that this river, that the headwaters are uh, fueled by glacier melt. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the that part of the world up there doesn't get much rain at all. The huh. um, the the area that I traveled through gets less than less than twenty inches of rain a year. Uh, or moisture a year, um, and in some places a lot less than that, um, as, as little as five. Um, so it, it doesn't take in a lot of water each year. Shockingly, um, shockingly not a lot of water. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, it's certainly something of a desert. I mean, kind of like Antarctica in that way. Um, the the water that's, that's up there has, has been there for a long time, and Right. And, and and yeah, it's glacial runoff and and some snow runoff, um, and um, and then you know, as I said, you as you go down the river, you see areas with ice dripping, and um, that adds somewhat to it as well. You know, there was a couple of good stories in Coastal News today over the last week about the Arctic. Uh, one in the shipping lanes, about the opening of the shipping lanes. Uh, Another, the, the NOAA Arctic uh, Center, which tracks conditions in the Arctic, just released a big report this week 
about some of the substantial changes in the Arctic. Uh, the highest average temperatures that they're in the last five years have, have been recorded ever uh, since records were kept. Things are definitely getting warmer. Uh, the rate of warming in the Alaska is twice as fast as the rest of the United States. Um, and a great story about this permafrost issue that you're bringing up. Um, that's kind of the structural foundation for most of what happens up there. Uh, the roads, the buildings, the houses, uh, the permafrost and its stability is kind of an important thing for a lot of communities in, in the great north of, uh, of the United States. Oh, yeah, it's huge. Uh, and certainly my, a part of my motivation in, in getting up there was, was to, to see it in, you know, in the midst of this change. Uh, while, while it's still in a, in a very wild and very unused state. Yeah. Yeah, I was. I I want to. I want to talk about your your motivation to go up there because it is. It's such a stark landscape, and um, you know, I understand that you have a a really deep uh, level of experience uh, paddling and exploring uh, a number of of different uh, parts of the planet. Um, but this this particular area, you know, obviously, it's extremely remote. Um, but yeah, you know, what, what draws you up there? <laughs> oh, it's, it, I've always had a, a real, uh, deep appreciation for wild places and it doesn't get any wilder than that. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I, I love being able, the fact that I can see, um, um, uh, that I can see the world as it, as it was in a lot of ways, uh, and as it still is. Um, hmm. But when I, places like that are especially exciting because the, the Arctic in a lot of ways is, is new land. It's, uh, uh, it, it's very sparse in, in terms of vegetation and, and life in a lot of ways, but, um, but, it, but it's what happens when you have, um, when you have exposed ground that, that has no life on it at all, life slowly comes in and takes over. And, and when you're in a place like that, you really feel like you've gone back in time a long, long ways. Mm. And they're kind of watching uh, a lot of things being born, it almost seems like. Did you notice, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And one of the things that we uh, have noticed and talked about quite a bit on this program and and on the network is the uh, how when you are on the American shoreline, you're at the the interface of the land and the water. Uh, it kind of changes your perception of time. <laughs> you're you become uh, aware of uh, forces. Like for example, when I when I stay on the beach for a few days, I start to notice the tides. I start to actually uh, the, the, the tidal cycles become more, uh, it really more of an important, uh, driver of my day than say the, the time of day. Um, yeah. describe a little bit about the, you know, this, this, here you are on this kind of really stark landscape. What, what was the time scale like? I mean, this is where, I mean, I'm trying to set this up. I mean, on the one hand, it's all, there's geologic time, which is, you know, a, a human lifetime is just a blink of an eye in that frame. But that's also a significant uh, human place in that I believe the the current theory is that humans came over that land bridge uh, some tens of thousands of years ago into North America right in that area. Yeah, that's... That seems to be the case I've, I've read a lot about it i have a real fondness for for looking at that kind of research um and uh uh and, and yeah it it appears that humans flowed right through that and and i could really imagine that um yeah when i was when i was up there uh i, I loved getting up to high places it's a great place for hiking you're never walking on trails but um but um, but it's it's so open that you can get up high and, and see forever, and and I could just imagine uh, 
you know, people moving through that area and feeling like it was uh, actually a very welcoming place. Um, in summer, it's it was all very green and and um, and and even though it it looks uh, on a at a given moment very empty, there there's a lot of life up there. Um, the the time thing was funny because um, you know it never gets dark up there really, and um, you don't you know you don't need a watch when you're traveling on your own. Um, yeah, I kind no, of nobody to meet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I kind of kept track of days uh, so that I wouldn't miss that last flight out. But um, but other than that, you don't pay much attention to time, and it's uh, it was. It was such a wonderful thing to to leave all that behind for a few weeks and 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 not have to conceive of uh, you know what time of the day it really was and didn't matter. I'd stay on the river until uh, I got tired of being on the river and then I'd get off and sleep and rest and uh, and get back on when I felt like it the next day. Did you uh, did you diary or or kind of journal when you were up there? Uh, to kind of you know one of the things i did a river trip in western colorado recently and i can tell you i can hardly uh distinguish in my memory one day from another i mean there are certainly memories memorable things happen but it's hard for me to reconstruct the like the chronology of everything did that happen to you and did you know how how when you think back on that trip are is it is it like a continuous uh, chronological thread, or is it just kind of a, a cloud of of experiences? Oh, the the days really stand out clearly to me, um, and and it was it was like a process that was not necessarily related to time. Um, I had wondered, you know, how uh, how that would feel um, going into it, but um, I. I didn't really much notice the passage of time. And yet when I think back on it, uh, from, from this point, um, I really have a, a, a good strong sense that, uh, that each day was, was separate and, and, uh, with its, with its own things to explore. And, uh, and it's all, it's, it's all sort of a, a vivid, um, picture in my mind of, of how it, unfolded. I, I really love going back. Part of, part of the thing with river travel like that is, uh, yeah, I can, uh, I can go back to Google Earth and, and, uh, and get a good look at that whole stretch of the river and zoom in on it and, and remember uh, when I was here and when I was there. Fantastic. So, Craig, can you share one of, uh, one of those indelible uh, days or memories or what jumps out at you when you think about that trip? Oh, sure. Um, you know, the second night I was there, I, I pulled up on this gravel bar and, and, um, and, and I was, I was feeling really excited. Uh, it, you know, just getting the trip started and, and moving was, was wonderful. And I, and I just pulled my raft up on this gravel bar and, and, um, uh, and was starting to take stuff out, and I, I heard this kind of gruff sound, like a rough, rough, you know. And I couldn't quite figure out what it was. It sounded canine, and um, and uh, and I looked around, and there was a there was a beautiful wolf just wow. sitting sitting up uh, on a little rise behind the gravel bar, and he was just kind of sitting there, silhouetted. Um, he was sitting on his haunches and <laughs> and watching oh, me. No. Um, had a beautiful striped face, uh, just a magnificent animal. And he started howling oh, right at, wow. uh, <laughs> he, he, for, for at least five minutes, he just kind of sat there on his haunches, howling at me and looking at me <laughs> and, and barking a bit. And, and, um, I was ecstatic. I, um, I've, I've seen wolves a few times in the past, but it was, it was an amazing sighting. And, um, uh, the whole time he was howling at me, he was back on his haunches. But in a little bit, um, I heard another wolf join in from from down the river a ways. Way off down, you could just hear the sound of him come up. 
And, and once he started, then the wolf I was watching stood up on all fours and, and it looked like the howl was going from the tip of his tail all the way out through his mouth. It was incredible. incredible. And um, I was wondering if they were deciding whether I was worth the, the trouble or not, um, <laughs> which I'm sure I wasn't. Um, but off they went. Uh, he, he then took off and trotted on down. And, and um, I think I felt real truly embedded in the place at that point. Yeah, I can only imagine. Wow. Did, uh, and this is one question I've always thought about when these remote trips, but uh, did you bring a firearm or did, what, what was your sense of safety? And what does it feel like to, if you don't have that? What does it feel like to be out there and, and have that kind of raw feeling of vulnerability as a, as a being? I think that's kind of a, we don't, we don't tolerate that much these days in, modern, in the modern world. Well, to, to be honest, I, I, I feel much safer in a place like that than when I'm walking through um, uh, downtown of any major city. Um, it, it feel when I, when I go to wilderness areas, I feel like it's a place that has no evil in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like there's a, there's a logic to the place that, that I'm very comfortable with. And, um, you know, and uh, amongst people, uh, there is evil, <laughs> and and, uh, and and I'd much rather you know run into uh, an animal doing what it naturally does, um, mm. yeah, some doing what they most unnaturally do. But I I did not take a weapon along. I um, I did a long personal trip in uh, southeast Alaska a few years ago, uh, and it was grizzly country there, and and I did take a rifle with me. And, um, and, and it, it was a bit of comfort to have, you know, to have a weapon, but at the same time, I didn't think it was really ever going to help me much. Um, I always take bear spray, um, and, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's a real useful tool to have. Um, you can, um, uh, you can have a chance of, of warding off anything that's, that seriously uh, trying to come after you. And, and I kept bear spray on my hip uh, the whole time I was awake uh, while I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I, I, never felt, I never felt worried or, or, or concerned about, about that world up there. It, it felt real comfortable to me and real relaxing. Sounds like it. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I would have brought a pistol. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would be useful for using on yourself, I've always thought. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would be a good reason to have it along, you know. But, um, you, you know, bears are the big thing. And and, um, and I've hunted, and I'm a hunter, um, and, and, I, uh, and I feel real comfortable with a gun. Um, but if a bear was, was actually attacking me, I'd... I'd I'd rather have bear spray to be honest yeah. and, and it's more safe with that. Uh, if, uh, you know, when you read the, the journals of Lewis and Clark, they were amazed at how hard it was to, to actually shoot a grizzly and stop it. And, and those guys were damn good with their rifles. Hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I, right. I, I'd rather have my bear spray. Um, and, and I'm more comfortable with that. Uh, and I did see some grizzlies. They were all really good sightings. Um, eating the blueberries? Uh, it, pardon? Were they eating the blueberries? I'm just, uh, you, you mentioned earlier that there was blueberry, peak blueberry season. I've, I've heard that those grizzlies love the, oh, love yeah. the berries. They're, they're foraging on, on berries and, and, and also fish, you know, this time of year. Uh, there were, uh, I, I saw some salmon um, up, up that far north. They're all dog salmon, they call them. Um, but, uh, but the bears are more focused on the fish that time of year. And, fish of the um, day, the dog salmon. That's a new one. <laughs> yeah. I need to put that on coastal yeah. news today. Alaskans are pretty, uh, picky about their salmon. I, and probably the local people up there, I'm not sure, but they probably don't call them dog salmon. Um, the people in the South call them that because they say they're only good to feed the dogs. Um, and, and. <laughs> The people yeah. who live where those salmon run um, 
feel pretty good about him. Right. Glad to see him show up every year. Yeah. Um, Craig, and my, my encounters with bears were uh, you, you saw a sign of them every day, um, saw a sign of tracks and, and, um, and scat. Uh, but, uh, but I had really good encounters with bears that were, uh, that were exciting uh, without, being, without really being dangerous at all. Wow. I, my favorite, my favorite creature I saw though, which was the first for me, was were muskox, uh, and that's a that's a primeval looking beast. Totally, uh, looks like it's walked right out of the ice age. And the first one I saw, I was coming down the river, and there was kind of a, a little bit of a cut bank that was about ten feet up to the top, and and I happened to look up, and and it, what I saw looked like a an Easter Island Maui statue, uh, this thing standing there looking so impressive. They're, they're very angular and, and vertical and, uh, got this long hair that reaches all the way down to the ground. And these long, the one that was looking at me was totally immobile and these long drooping horns that went down the side of his face, just wow. a incredible animal. Man. That's and that's that's why you go right is to get away from, oh, yeah. get to a place where that stuff still is happening. Oh yeah, and there were a number of muskox sightings. They were they were a great animal to see. Uh, there, not not a lot of places to see them in the wild for sure. Man, so in in preparing for the trip and you know thinking about going to this particular place, did what did you read about it? Did you did you find out anything about the history and who who's been there or what the indigenous populations are? Can you frame it out a little bit? Did you spend some time? I bet you did. Uh, oh yeah, um, and you know, given given that world up there, it, as I said before, it's um, it, it's a harsh place for humans to live, and so um, and so you, humans don't really have a. a a big history there that we're aware of. Um, but, but there is, there has been a constant presence for, you know, maybe 20,000 years, you know, depending on what was happening with the ice at the given times. And, um, uh, and, and I really felt strongly, I guess, not so much the presence of humans, uh, currently is, is the presence of, of, the humans who had passed through there before. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always looking for, uh, for, for science. You know, the, the one thing about going down a river, you know, it's always cutting into the, right. to the world around you. And so you see all these layers of things. And I was, um, I was dying to see some, uh, some part of that past that I could recognize come popping out. Uh, um, I really felt the presence of people, um, you know, native people have, have have found ways to to live there and, and and be truly a part of that world. And I and I have great respect for that. Um, it's a place that I felt only able to visit. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's considered. I think it's described as the largest undisturbed watershed in North America. Um, yes. It's listed as the international. It, it is part of the International Biosphere Reserve, and I. Th- I think that's a not an inter, is that a UN designation, um, and it's a wild and scenic river as well. Yeah, uh, pretty remote, pretty spectacular. Um, what's the next adventure, Craig? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you, and have. can we come? <laughs> and can we come with you, and <laughs> and 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 do a podcast from there? <laughs> we'll need to do that. Uh, uh, this. This world is a is is still a, a tremendously beautiful, exciting place, and um, and there are no shortage of, of of places to go to get out and and see it. And um, and I love seeing people do that. I, I love seeing people appreciate it and and, and get a better feel for uh, for what is there, so that they understand the importance of it. That place that I visited last summer, I, I came away feeling like that was uh, 
that was a place we need to be thoughtful about and and not take for granted. And um, that's something we've done too much of. Mm. You know, this is uh, probably going to be similar to what you just uh, said, but do you have any any remarks that you'd like to, to leave our audience with? Obviously, uh, I'm sure we have some listeners up in Alaska on the uh, great shoreline up there, but uh, certainly most of our audience is down in the in the lower 48 in Hawaii. Um, what would you tell our audience about uh, keeping these places in mind and um, treasuring them? I, I think that the more we get to view the planet as our home and, and, and understand that we need to treat it as our home, uh, the better we'll be. We have a real bad habit as humans of, of, uh, of taking wonderful care of those things that are, that are right around us um, and, and kind of discarding things that, that don't impact us directly. And, um, and, and I, you know, I grew up um, in, in my lifetime being very imbued with that idea that, um, that the planet is our home. Uh, and and it's it's our responsibility to take good care of our home, and I'd I'd love to see us do a better job of that. Mm-hmm. Wow, you know, Craig, uh, you've been a you spent a lot of time traveling around the world, and especially to these remote locations. I understand you've climbed Mount McKinley, right? Is that is that on? Is it, have you checked that box? <laughs> well, not necessarily a box to check, and I and I didn't get to the very top. Um, <laughs> I. Uh, I, I reached a point and, and realized, well, this is my summit, and that's fine by me. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. And, and, and I, just a, a quick note, that is now Denali. That mountain has that been renamed. Right. It is Denali now. It's the original now, name. But... Officially, which it should have been. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, uh, I, being, to, being able to go in, into those different parts of, of planet Earth is is real exciting uh, thing to, to have an opportunity to do. Um, one of the things that my trip inspired me to do was to, um, I'm, I'm uh, actually just kind of halfway through rereading The Voyage of the Beagle, mm. because that was, it's such a wonderful account of this book. young man who, you know, who goes out and, yeah. and realizes, wow, what a great world this is. Yeah. And um, the detail and the intimacy with which he explored it and looked at it. Wonderful book. Uh, People don't realize how young Darwin was and Captain Cook, I think was 23 or 24. Uh, Those are some young strapping guys who crossed the oceans and discovered a lot about the world. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying, uh, rereading that book and, and thinking of him, uh, would love to have been along with him. So I have to ask you this, uh, having been up and down certainly the West Coast and other parts of the, uh, around the world, uh, do you have a favorite part of the American coast or the American shoreline? Is there a place that really uh, sticks with you? You know, I, um, I've been asked that before, and, um, and I my favorite response is to say that my favorite place is right where I'm at mm. at a given point in time. And, um, and I, and I love to think that I can, that I can try to do that. But, um, but yeah, in reality, uh, there, there are places that, that really stick in my mind. I was fortunate to live out in Nia Bay, um, for, uh, for a year, which is the, farthest northwest point of uh the lower 48 and um and and that that place that pokes out there cape flattery um it's a it's a a rocky headland that i was able to spend a lot of time kayaking around and um uh it's got sea caves there that you can paddle back into and uh, on a good day and um uh and and that that spot was was so magical um, that it always kind of pops into my mind involuntarily when 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 I get asked a question like that. But in reality, there's 
so many great places and um um and i i i think we need to find ways to love them all right absolutely i think when you talked about taking care of it as your home it's easy to dismiss that notion as sort of you know gee whiz wouldn't that be great but it it represents an idea that uh is critically important and especially on the shoreline um what we see in the transitions in coastal communities that we've gone to um, is this commodification of space where these things are reduced these spaces these places are rendered down to dollars and cents in possession and that whole way of thinking about landscapes uh, leads you in a certain direction uh, a ethic that that uh, does not include sort of that commodification of the land and the water gives you a certain a different path a strikingly different path and relationship to to, to space and uh, you know it's the guarding principle that helps us do a little bit better if you can keep that notion of uh, caring for the for the house the home planet uh in mind yeah. well and i think as we uh as we take our last week of 2018 and uh start thinking about 2019 and what we uh, hope to accomplish in the in the coming year and and uh reflect on the on past year i think that uh craig you highlighted some really uh, profound and deep uh, things to think about about our place on the planet, how we treat the shoreline. I think that that's motivation for our entire effort here at Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network is that we are motivated, of course, to provide insights and intelligence and uh, help all those pros out there get their message out and share best practices and all that business. But really, when you when you really go down to the bone marrow, there's a deeper purpose here there's something that draws us all to the shoreline and it's a it's a powerful force uh and and it totally deserves our respect craig and and thank you for for highlighting this trip oh yeah sure anytime uh it's fun to talk about it well merry christmas craig to you and uh wish you the best in the new year and uh thank you for for ending the year on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network on a high note and uh, an inspirational note. Really appreciate your time today. Birds on the lawn, sunlight at dawn, singing mama down the Been a boy, take one, mama. Sad to build their hotels, my father's 